This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. Look for their newest line, Pristine, the only complete line of pet food made with responsibly sourced ingredients. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org pets. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes.
Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz, sitting with you in Paris with the owners, partners, best friends, coffee addicts <laughs> of Bellevue Coffee. Welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank, Thank you. Uh, Thomas and Jeff. So before we get into your backstories, let's talk about the history of coffee in Paris. Obviously introduced in 1644 and then terrible for 300 something years. Uh, the phrase that I came across that I thought was really funny was um, sock juice or bad sock juice. Could you maybe give a bit of history on that? And what is it in French? Because I would butcher it. So sock juice in French is the jus de chaussette. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's actually technically it means what what it is. It's like uh, it's like making your coffee with with uh, like a, a pair of pair of soy juice. And because French culture think like the espresso is the ultimate way of drinking coffee. And when people French are very proud of their food culture and everything, so they're like thinking like soy juice can be only the, the coffee in, in diner you can have. And that's also the coffees that they used to have at home. And most of the time, they don't. You have used to have very good coffee at home, so uh, that's why like they close. They're getting close to the soy juice to like bad quality coffee. And for a country that's really well known for its ingredients, why do you think that the proliferation of bad coffee or bad sock juice coffee <laughs> happened? I think okay. I think people were drinking bad coffee, but they were convinced they were drinking good coffee. And that's what it is. So you've always had coffee because. Uh, coffee's been around uh, for a really long time, and anywhere you go where specialty coffee hasn't uh, arrived yet, you come across cultures where people are absolutely convinced that their coffee, specifically the one that they're drinking at their at their cafe, is the best coffee on earth, and that every other coffee is just terrible. I think the the idea is also is like people think because you get many many more places to have a good coffee in specialty coffee places in US or in Nordic places, but it's still, if you, there's two signs, if you compare to like the community coffee, community coffee is still bad in US, community coffee is still bad in Australia, but good spot for good coffee, there's so many in, the, in all this country, and I think France has, as Jeff said, like people used to think like, oh, we, we do good coffee everywhere, so why we should change anything? And uh, I think in most of the places like all over the world, they had bad coffee, but some places, need like choose to change to good coffee good coffee right so everyone here just had a really bad frame of reference and it was just everyone was like well i mean it just tastes like this everywhere so this is the best version of a bad thing yeah i think also the, the one of the main reasons also is like because france and and some country in south of europe has a as a like a like a strong story with colonies uh, especially in africa and they used to import robusta coffee from all of this country and we know that robusta is it's less uh, aromatic and, and, and not as good as could be Arabica. So it's also like a heavy, heavy things in France, La Robusta. Right. So a lot of it was like, oh, we grew these crops from places we colonized. So it makes sense. It's like a very good supply chain. And why wouldn't we feed money back into there or not pay for it or whatever the resources <laughs> would be yeah. uh, instead of being like, let's just go find the best. In the mm-hmm. world. Okay. Yeah. So, Thomas, let's start with you. So, you're obviously from France. Where did you grow up? Uh, I was born in south of France, but I grew up in the west of France, in the Loire Valley. And uh, my family is... I, my family is a farmer, so I, I grew up in, a, in produce. Uh, a lot of products, like uh, we used to make goat cheese. And, um, and after that, I, I traveled a bit in, in, Australia, in England and in Australia. And I went back to France eight years ago, now in, in Paris. And how did you get into the coffee game? 
because I had to get money <laughs> at the beginning. And now at the beginning was like more, I was working in hospitality to pay my study in mm. my university. And uh, at a certain point I was happy, I had more pleasure at working behind a bar than studying. Mm. So I chose to do more, more, co- more, more bars. And when I went to Australia, I discovered coffee shops as as one as, does. Yeah. And, Home and, with the flat white. Yeah. I mean, depending who you ask. Exactly. But. <laughs> but at that point, when I, I were there, like that was 10 years ago, and the coffee wasn't as good as we think. Like coffee shops were there, there were so many, but the coffee was like the, still bad, like mm-hmm. if you compare to now. Um, but the idea of a coffee shop, the idea of having a place and you don't serve alcohol, you bring so many people from different like population, uh, you, like men, women, children. That was some kind of good idea and good vibes that I want to bring in France. And when I came back to France, I was like, oh, I'm going to open a coffee shop. So. And what was the name of the... You opened two. What, were the, what was the first one you opened? Uh, so the first one was uh, from my part was Tenbel, mm-hmm. which is uh, a coffee shop uh, in, uh, near the Canal Saint-Martin. And, uh, and I opened it five years ago. Uh, I sold my chair last year, but, um, but yeah. And, uh, and the second one is technically La Fontaine, which is not really a coffee shop, but really. Sure. And for the beans that you were getting uh, for 10 bells, what was the current state of them? And obviously five years ago, where were you getting them from? Where were you sourcing them? Uh, that's actually, Bellville is because of that, like the roastery become, become a roastery because of that, because when I started 10 bell, I couldn't find the coffee that I want in, in France. Uh, so we were buying coffee from a friend in England, a roaster called Hasbin, mm. and uh, until a certain point, then my business partner uh, David um, was like, "Oh, we should start a roastery because they stupid to buy coffee from somewhere else and it could be in France." And he owned Telescope Coffee, right? Yeah, at that point, yeah. So it was just two like very like disgruntled coffee owners who knew that there was better stuff out there but couldn't get it. Yeah, and I think we from the beginning we even before we opened the shops, uh, we had an association together called the Frog Fight. It used to be like an event when we sh- used to bring coffee from all over the world and share it with people, and it worked very very well. And I think we had like the uh, we were thinking that French people would be very ready to that and very interesting on having like better produce. Where were you sourcing the coffee from for the events, or how would you get the beans? We we used to just call friends all over the world and say, "Hey, uh, I'm doing these events. Can you send me some coffee from from Chicago, from uh, from uh, Australia, uh, Norway?" And uh, and people were very very happy to just send us beans and and from I don't know one farm different process or three farmers from the same region. Like it was. It was more an idea of sharing that things with people. And did did they come roasted or did you roast them once you got them? No, here? they came roasted. Okay, and, so uh, full. Yeah, full, at that time. Service. At that time. At that time, yeah. And Jeff, um, American. Uh, well, actually, I'm I I'm actually French. That's oh. the thing. Yeah, it's uh, I trick people. I uh, <laughs> I was a spy for a very long time. You just removed the entire accent. Yeah. <laughs> Lived in the states for yeah. a long time. No, I uh, I speak uh, English like this as well. Uh, if you prefer. Um, no, because no one will be able to tell you apart in the interview, so yeah. it's like very very helpful. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm actually, so I was actually born in the U.S., which is kind of very, very funny, um, just because uh, my dad was a huge fan of uh, America and the U.S., and he wanted me to be American. So basically, I was just born in the U.S., and then my parents flew home, and I grew up in Paris. And, uh, but then after high school, I moved to the U.S., and I spent uh, 11 years there. Uh, or, yeah, about 11. And then a couple years in London, and then I've been back in Paris for 
Um, nine years, I think. Yeah. And originally, you were in the music industry. Entrepreneur. I was. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, I did. I did a lot of different things. I was always an entrepreneur, and I was. I played in in uh, in rock bands. Please name the bands. No. <laughs> <laughs> These will forever remain nameless. Uh, <laughs> uh, they were not good. Uh, but uh, the I did manage uh, a few other bands, and uh, while I was uh, doing that, um, I wasn't earning money, but I was working as a web developer, and uh, I always had uh, tech jobs and working at tech startups. And then after spending all that time in the U.S., I wanted to move back to Europe, and so I did uh, an MBA uh, at INSEAD, just right outside of Paris, uh, which is a one-year MBA program. And uh, when I finished that, I moved to London, and I continued uh, working in tech, always with a, with a, um, a connection to music. At, uh, I was working at Last FM, uh, and then after that, I moved back to Paris, uh, did my own startup. Uh, which went really well for uh, for four years, but then uh, unfortunately uh, went out of business. And uh, that was at the same time uh, that I met uh, David and Thomas. Uh, essentially, I was uh, going on my way to work, stopping at Ten Bells, Thomas' coffee shop, uh, every morning because his coffee shop was um, literally down the street, like a uh, thirty-second walk from my house. And so I would get my coffee there every day, and uh, we became friends. And when they uh, when they decided to start up Belleville, uh, I uh, decided to uh, you know um, to to join them. And there was a uh, it was actually a great initially I was just an investor, uh, but it, uh, as the uh, after two years of running the business, I ended up joining the business full time uh, as we had like very complementary skills. Um, I'm actually ten years older than these guys. And so I had, uh, I'd been, I'd gone through the growth phase of, uh, of companies and I knew uh, how to develop businesses and these guys knew everything that I didn't know about, <laughs> about coffee and roasting and all these things. So it was, it was a good, uh, it was a good match. We're going to take a quick musical break and then we're going to talk about the inception and conception of Belleville <laughs> and we'll be right back here on Snacky Tunes. Sure, 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 all right. 
blind Oh yeah, blood and a smile on my When did you and David begin to have the idea of creating your own coffee company? Um, very, very early actually. Like I think a few months after we met, um, we were thinking about doing something together about coffee. But at the beginning, we didn't really know if he was on like I don't know on training, on events, on coffee business like coffee shops or roastery I think at the beginning it was more like okay we want to do something in coffee because we want to learn more in coffee and this is like 2011-2012 yeah okay and um, even earlier than that and um, and after like we worked together for like a, a year and did the association together and the events we actually realized and Paris was like People were like struggling for like good cup or no more about coffee and, uh, and. Would you see from your event that people would have a cup of coffee and their eyes would light up, or they would be like, "I've never had coffee." Was I did this way before? They were like, I think both. Some of people were like, "What the hell is that? Like, is that coffee? Like, it tastes like fruit and chocolate and and cake and what's what did you what did you put in my coffee?" And uh, so that was that's a good step because it's, it's and some people were like oh that's very bad like what's what's in it like and when you explain to them then that's about the aroma and something you can find in a coffee and we didn't add anything they were like oh my god like so I just discovered a new world of things and um, yeah and we were like so surprised and people get very very um, the French population which is good about that is like they they know about terroir they know about like varieties of things like we have that kind of culture about wine, about apples, about uh, vegetables. So people very um, easily understand when we talk about like farmers, process, and, and then, yeah, they, they were very happy. So we were like, oh my God, there is, there is some uh, things to do. We should, we should start early. 
So then where did the concept begin? Did you start with finding farmers or how did you, I mean, the idea is great, but then where did you start the, the process of building the company? Um, selling coffee to people. Yeah. <laughs> um, or how did you begin to change the, the industry and the practices of, you know, the last 300 plus years? So David has got the, a strong part on that because he's, he worked in in U.S. in Washington, D.C. and he, he worked under, I mean, he was training from... Uh, two uh, big strong people about coffee um, uh, from a, a coffee shop you work it's called uh, Murky Coffee at the beginning and it was a, it's, it's closed anymore now but uh, but it was one of the best coffee shops ever and uh, he learned I mean many of the people he met there and he learned how to make coffee great and testing coffee I mean most of our job is more is testing coffee and that's if you don't know how to test it you can't buy it you can't roast it and you can't save it so um, he, he's very good at that and uh, and from his relationship with the people over the world we had like great relationship with importers, uh, distributors and roasters so we were like oh my god let's let's talk to these people and ask them if, if it's a good idea if we start something or if they're gonna help us to give us advice on like who, who's called, who I need to call to import my coffee or we need to call to have a good example of a profile for roasting coffee, and uh, we had all of these people, and uh, and so yeah, and stuff like that. And you have a really great relationship with your farmers and suppliers. Um, it's long term; it's not very short term. So, how did you develop them? Who were some of the first ones to get on board with you? And and I th- if you can explain the nature of the relationship, because I think it's really important. Yeah, it's um, so the main idea of working with these farmers for us is, is long term, long term, long term, long term. We, we believe then we can do a real trade um, with these farmers and we can grow and they can grow with us at the same time. Um, for, to give you an example, we, we start uh, the first year with a farmer, um, it's called Neptali Bautista. Uh, he's, he's, got, uh, he's got a farm in Honduras, in San Vicente. And um, when David went there and met him the first time, uh, he was pretty behind the many farmers around his place and uh, because he used to do coffee but not very like amazing coffee and uh, and he knew the farmers around him used to do better quality and get better money with that and when David met him with David saw in this guy some some good like I don't know a, a nice feeling the uh, full energy of like to want to do better and and want to increase the quality to increase his money his revenue because I mean that's why it's important as well and um, so we bought this coffee the first year, even if we knew that the coffee wasn't as good as it should be, because we we believed then the coffee would go, uh, the coffee quality would grow, and uh, the next year his quality jumped so high, then we were like, oh my god, that <laughs> we we bet on the on the right guy, and after three years his coffee was better than everyone on the area, and uh, I mean, from my point of view and from <laughs> many point of view of people around, but. Uh, that's a great example of like because from it's been four years, five years now with Benny's coffee because David used to buy it from Telescope as well. But uh, and um, and the quality went so high, then the price went so high as well. So we buying his coffee much much higher than we used to four years ago. But we also selling it more expensive here. So that's the whole idea of David is that is like we try to get the same farmers every year and working together to get like quality increase and price increase because I think that's something important that we need to think is like if we want to keep good quality in coffee in general we need to buy coffee to the farmers more and more and more expensive just because like 
they, people need to understand. We need more farmers. So we need people who get more involved in a good quality. And how deep do you go into helping them build the infrastructure? Like now that you are so many years in, that you go and be like, okay, we'll get you this machine and we'll get you this processor, we'll get you better. No, if we do that, it's not trade. Right. What I mean and trade is like, you do better coffee, I buy you more expensive. And I mean, these people, they don't need us. I mean, they get in us for buying the coffee, give them advice for maybe from our part. But these people, I don't know how to grow a coffee tree. I don't know how to run a farm. And I think it's very uh, kind of a past kind of weird colonialism. And I think then I don't want to, I mean, I want to help them as I can, but I don't want to go there and say, oh, I'm going to buy you that, buy you this. And, you know, it's like, I want to, for example, Neptal is, is still a good example on that because the second years and he's got more money about his coffee because he cared more about his coffee and say so it's more expensive. He had the money to build uh, uh, some bigger place. Then he, grew, he he plants new a new crop of coffee in it. So in few years, I'm thinking two or three years, we're gonna have the first harvest of that coffee. So he's gonna make more money on that. And um, I think it's the right way. I don't want to. I don't want to feel like uh, um, you know we we like. We growing with them, but they know what they're doing. Like it's to get the coffee, the qualities that we receive here, they don't need us. I mean, they they're good at what they're doing. When Belleville uh, opened and started roasting, what was the time for people to start uh, adopting to the coffee? Was it immediate? Like they just tasted the quality, the difference in quality, or they're like, this doesn't taste like the other coffee that we're used to. Or how long did it take for people to start to catch on? Um, I think it's that's only. Because I mean, it's because of the way we sell it, we bring the products. We believe that people, everyone can see the difference in good or bad. Like I don't believe that people need like ages to train the palate or like I don't think so. I think if you do, if we do our job right, if we if we don't go on like too much acidity on the coffee or too much on that, and we we try to find balance in the way of buying coffee and roasting the coffee, I think our customer doesn't matter who they are. I think they can. They can realize if they open to see and and to try. I think that they 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 can understand, and that's why we do. For example, with the cafe, is like we we're not pretending to be like. I mean, we we believe we serve one of the best coffee in France, but we don't push it. Like we don't show it to people. We're just like, okay, that's a cup of coffee. If you like it, let's talk about it. Let's talk about the cafe. Uh, how did it come into being, or what led to it, or what was the decision to do it? And, and the building itself, we could also talk about it as well, since it's a, so stunning. <laughs> well, yeah, I can talk about it if you want. Uh, the uh, we Belleville had been around for uh, for a couple of years, and we were the only roaster in Paris that did not have its own uh, coffee shop yet. So there was a lot of expectation uh, from uh, from our friends and from our from our clients. Uh, to, um, you know, people were waiting for us to open a, a coffee shop, but our brand is, uh, is very French. The name is French. Uh, our, um, our brand imagery and everything relating to our universe is, is very French. We play a lot with the, the sock juice that we talked about, uh, earlier and that's become kind of a, uh, you know, we, it's part of our branding is, is the sock juice and the, the jus chaussettes and, uh, playing about how jus chaussettes can be, uh, can be delicious. And uh, we felt that there was a really great uh, cafe culture in Paris, uh, in France, you know, with the, the really old-timey cafes, uh, with the brasserie and the, the, the specific furniture on the terrace uh, in uh, Rotin chairs. I'm not sure how those are pronounced, those, that's called in English. But um, instead of opening up a coffee shop, we wanted to really double down on the, uh, on the, French, side of, uh, on the French side of things. 
and we felt there's such a great uh, cafe culture. It's a shame that you can't have that and uh, delicious coffee at the same time. And so we decided to open up uh, a really traditional French cafe uh, brasserie place that served specialty coffee and that also had the same philosophy that we have with coffee on all the products that are served uh, inside the place. So we have about a hundred different suppliers for, uh, yeah, hundred to 150 different suppliers <laughs> <laughs> just for this, this cafe here, which uh, has a very simple menu. But every single uh, every single item on the uh, on the menu is sourced uh, um, independently, and uh, it makes it makes all the difference. Uh, people really taste the difference, whether it's with coffee or, or any of the products that we serve. Small you know? details count a lot. I mean, it's uh, as as Jeff said about like if we get honey, we know where it came from. We know the farmer. If we get olive oil, we know where it came from. And sometimes we just pick it up ourselves in Italy or like. And it's as as you say, like it's uh, about two hundred um, supplier, but it's, it's just a thousand. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's uh, the Cloak Madame it's, has yeah. a, a nine hundred alone. I think it's two hundred and thirty-four, <laughs> uh, if I'm right, uh, last month. But uh, yeah. it's it's uh, I think it's the point. I think uh, in general in France, and I think France lost kind of that culture. But we used to have that kind of products fifty years ago in every cafe. Well, it doesn't matter where you came from, where you are in France, it's, you, you should have that. And now in, in any places, you get the same menu, same drinks, you get like four suppliers, which is like suppliers for coffee and hot drinks, a supplier for drinks, for alcohol, for wine, and a supplier for the beer. You get three suppliers kind of. And they all have the same, Heineken or whatever. And like, and the problem is like, I think people get bored of that and, and, and that's never what we want. I mean, like there's no points of like, opening a place if you don't want to share like the good quality on everything and for the beers, for the wine and for everything. So this is just not what you guys are doing. There's some projects that are opening coming this fall. What are you working on? We promise not to air this until it's public knowledge, <laughs> but what are you working on? What's in the future? So we just, uh, you know, Belleville started in a uh, 50 uh, square meter space in Belleville, uh, which is, uh, had, we've completely outgrown it uh, in terms of, uh, you know, we're do the roasting still happens there, but it, it's, it used to also be our office, it used to be... A training center. Training center, yeah. Uh, quality and you still, quality and you still do weekly trainings and cuppings for the community, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Every Saturday. Yeah. And, uh, and Wednesdays also and Wednesday for, for the uh, professional for the pros yeah and so we've got uh, we're basically moving our production uh, to a new space that we just uh, that we just got and that's under construction uh, as we're speaking uh, which is still in the neighborhood but it's massive it's 450 square meters and it's gonna be a lot of different things it's gonna be a, a finally like a, a boutique uh, flagship space where you can go and uh, taste coffees like uh, you'll have a, a menu where you can really choose every single variety that we have and and choose like which kind of extraction you want to taste it in. So it's more of an experience, uh, discovery experience, as well as then the goal is for you to then buy uh, any kind of coffee and equipment that you need for making coffee uh, at home. So it's going to be really a, um, for shopping for coffee at home. Then uh, in that same space will be a much bigger uh, roasting space. Uh, a storage area, a whole uh, classroom slash cupping uh, um, area where we can we'll do all our quality controls and also all our trainings. Uh, we'll finally have a really big office space, <laughs> which we've been uh, really uh, lacking. And uh, finally, we're also going to have a centralized kitchen, 
which is going to allow us to, to uh, increase the, the menu options here at uh, La Fontaine, while also supplying uh, food to our latest acquisition, which is a, uh, a coffee shop that we uh, that's in Belleville, so we're staying staying true to it, staying true <laughs> to our roots. Uh, yeah, we've just taken over a, a coffee shop that uh, that was called Cream, uh, and that was started by some of Thomas' uh, old employees, and uh, and it's going to reopen as a as a Belleville uh, Belleville coffee shop in uh, next month. Amazing. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you both for your time. Uh, where can people find you, uh, learn about your history, get your good sock juice, etc.? <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's all online at uh, cafébelleville.com. Uh, it's cafe with an S. Uh, and uh, we do uh, subscriptions and we ship worldwide. Incredible. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. We're going to take Thanks, another you. musical break and then we'll be back with the second part of Snacky Tunes.
This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. You put a lot of care and thought into what you eat. After all, you're a food radio listener. That thoughtfulness goes hand in paw with how you feed your pets. Purposeful pet food doesn't happen by accident. Castor and Pollux scours the earth to carefully select the best organic and responsibly sourced ingredients. New Pristine from Castor and Pollux is the only complete line of pet food made with ingredients that are responsibly raised, caught, or grown. Feed your dog or cat the new standard, like grass-fed beef, wild-caught fish, and vegetables grown without synthetic fertilizers or chemical pesticides. Pristine from Castor and Pollux. Purposeful pet food. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org pets. Welcome back. We have Rhodes Rollins in the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks for being here, Ron. How's it going over there? It's going. Going? <laughs> yeah. Rhodes, you are from Colorado. Yeah. How was that as a childhood? I was born and raised in Boulder. Um, it's, you know, it's a beautiful place to grow up. Stunning. Yeah. I really loved it. Um, by the time I was 17, I was really ready to get out. Mm. Um, and that's when I moved to New York. But... Um, no, I loved it. I, I grew up actually at a, a bilingual school there. So it, I was kind of lucky to have maybe a little less of a typical Boulder experience there. It was like a 70% Mexican uh, school. Um, and I grew up immersed in Spanish there. And that was a really amazing place to, to kind of grow up and to that. And what was the music scene like there? I, I've gone out to Boulder to do a couple indie rock shows in like the yeah. early 2000s but it was not as uh, receptive as one <laughs> would have thought so like what was the yeah. musical landscape growing up you know EDM is really big there okay. um yeah like <laughs> it's embarrassing but I I do remember like blasting dubstep in the car when I was like 15 16 years old with my friends um that scene is really big there um, as far as like indie rock, I think there, you know, there is a scene. I always think of Fox on the Hill, the mm -hmm. Fox Theater. Mm -hmm. um, there's some good spots, and um, I think there is a scene there in terms of like um, kind of a local live scene. Um, but for me, um, I didn't really get immersed into it so much until I moved out of Boulder. So you talk about. Um like the Western landscapes and sound being a huge inspiration for you. Mm -hmm. uh, what is it about it? How does that work its way into your music? Mm -hmm. Where can you find it in your songs? Yeah, I um, on the EP I just released called Young Adult. Well, I didn't just release it. I guess it's almost been a year. Um, I really tried to tap into kind of a spaghetti Western vibe with whistles and kind of slow, sad tremolo guitars, and I really envisioned uh, the desert and mountainscape kind of a lot when I was writing. Um, and I, I kind of looked at artists like Nancy Sinatra and Lee Hazelwood um, for inspiration when writing those songs. Um, that, that EP is about growing up, and um, that was mostly in Boulder for me. And um, I wanted to tap into that that sound and that feel of the West. So. And you mentioned, what, how old were you when you moved out to New York? I was 17. You moved to New York. So you were already on the East Coast, but looking West for inspiration. How did you yeah. balance being here, but keeping that kind of, you know, large open plain mountains in the distance? Yeah. Um, while not being influenced by 
Brooklyn per se. Right. Yeah, maybe I was looking outward. I never even really thought about that. We're so densely packed in here. Um, you know, I, most of the work I do in music is still out west. I'm mostly in LA doing recording and working out there. And that was kind of a strange but fun dynamic for me. Um, I was in college here, um, but flying back and forth uh, to record and, and work. So that's, you know, that was another reason why I feel like it was kind of this almost nostalgic feeling for me because when I was here, I really didn't want to be here. I was in school. I was studying. I wasn't studying music. What were you studying? I was at NYU. Okay. Um, and uh, Still doesn't answer. What were you studying? Oh, what was I studying? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I swear. Um, I was studying cultural iconography. Okay. Um, which essentially is like looking at the branding of people, what makes somebody iconic in culture and what are the visual aspects of that. And so it is very much related to the music super world. Super helpful. Yeah, yeah, and super interesting. And I and I love doing it. I, I'm kind of a nerd. I, I like diving into intellectual things. So I enjoyed being in school, but um, but my mind was often somewhere else, and it was kind of out west. Um, so. Can we hear a song? Yeah. What are you going to play for us? Uh, we're going to start with a song called Loving You. It's a song that's kind of become a staple of my set, but it's never been recorded, so... Oh, well, here we go. Here it is. (laughs) Here we go, live on Snacking Tunes. All right.
<laughs> you mentioned your young adult EP, which is now almost a year old. Yeah. It has so many great stories on it. Is there one in particular that you feel is kind of like emblematic or iconic? <laughs> Good word to you. <laughs> of, the, of the EP. Definitely. Um, there's a character named Wes that comes up in a bunch of the songs on that EP. Um, and, you know, as I said, the story is about growing up. It's a, the, the EP itself is really a story of coming of age tales um, kind of strung together. And um, Wes was um, my young first love. Um, real or fictional? Uh, real, but fictional name. Okay. <laughs> um, and uh, he kind of had a, a really tragic story. Um, and uh, we were together when I was in high school. He was a bit older than I was. Left um, Boulder to go study in Kansas. Uh, he was um, not from the States, but he was a football player, an American football player. Um, and got a scholarship to play in Kansas. Um, and we were not together anymore, um, but, you know, we kept in touch, and he was very unhappy there. He didn't fit in, really, as a foreign person where he was. It was a small town, um, and was just kind of down. It wasn't good, and he finally found out that he was eligible for a full-ride scholarship to go to his dream school. Um, went out to go celebrate with his friends. Um, they were in a car um, and got pulled over, and he had just a little bit of weed on him. Weed, what current at this time was not legal anywhere. It was, you know, had he been in Colorado, he probably would have gotten off with a fine um, at the time, but in Kansas, it was definitely not legal. Um, and uh, he was arrested um, and put in jail for a quarter of a year. Um, simply because he wasn't a citizen. He had a super high bail. He, he was there. that He couldn't get out. Um, and once he'd served his sentence, he was deported. Um, and his story was so tragic and just so upsetting, you know, just because a simple document, you know, he was treated completely different and really inhumanely. And I really wanted a platform to be able to tell that story. Um, and so I tell his story on that EP, and um, and I try to try to bring it up because there's so many people that go through that that their stories aren't told. And I think in so many ways too, he was lucky to have been a white guy um, in that situation. Um, so that's a yeah, that's pretty much the the heavy story that I tell on that EP. No more questions. Can you yeah, play another song for us? Yeah, I know. Us? Just <laughs> play sorry for song. the downer. No, no, no. <laughs> Please play another song. What All are you right. going to play for us? Um, this song is is called Big Girls. <laughs>
know about me and you We drive, we stall, we crash, bring sorrow I don't know about me and you, oh And I don't know what big girls do They think don't follow that suicide I don't know what big girls do You mentioned that you have worked in Mexico City. What brought you there? What have you done down there? Where's your favorite taco? <laughs> Tell me all the secrets. Um, so, yeah, as I mentioned to you, I grew up studying at a bilingual school and was very immersed in Mexican-American culture um, and have always been drawn to Latin culture in general. Um, and I was going back and forth between New York and LA um, and I had this project ready young adult and I really wanted to do something different I wanted to release it in a different way I didn't want to do a release show in New York or LA um, before that happened I decided to go down to Mexico City and do a music video there but I brought in a New York team with me um, called Street Dreams Magazine. They're like a video collective based here. Um, and there were like five or six of us and none of us had ever been to Mexico City before. Um, and, you know, it's a massive place. And um, I didn't just want to be these American transplants down there that had no idea what they were doing. So I figured um, Street Dreams Magazine has like a big Instagram presence. Um, so I thought I'd hit up some local Instagrammers in Mexico City to see if they would be interested in doing some type of collaboration with us. And um, we found a few people that were super down to help out. Um, and they ended up completely taking on the project and like leading the way. And I thought they were such cool people. Then um, it was so cool because they were like, architects and photographers and fashion designers and people that they weren't really involved in music but there's this kind of energy in Mexico City that like all these different types of artists are really 
collaborative and involved in each other's work, which I I don't feel as much, um, at least in my circle here or in L.A. Um, yeah, we had Gabby from Contramar on uh, earlier this year, and she talks about how it feels how New York must have felt in the 70s when everyone was just into each other's stuff yeah. and just collaborating and it just was everyone's like you're into that I'm into this let's do something together let's let's mix it up yeah it's like so open and it was so refreshing and I was only there for five days shooting that video um, which actually never ended up coming out but um, it led to kind of a discovery of this artist scene down there and I was like I have to go back so then fast forward to me releasing this project and wanting to do something different so I decided that I would play a release show down there um, and I you know reached out to those friends I made I said you know is there anybody that might be able to help me put something together I just want to play a show and you know see what happens um, I had been there or so I went down there knowing a handful of people um, I was there for two weeks before I played the show I think probably 150 people came to that show and I knew almost every single person in the room. It's amazing. It was, it was amazing. And it, it really doesn't have anything to do with me. I don't think I really, it's like an amazing community down there. Well, um, where did you play the show? It was at this bar called Shaman. Um, Shaman. It's like a kind of Ecuadorian themed like bar with incense everywhere. It's super cool and cavernous and it was awesome. Um, so I ended up staying down there for a while, um, doing another music video, which did come out. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so it was all worth it in the end. Um, and yeah, and I just had an amazing time. And that, I'm so sad about what happened there. I know. We have um, some a lot of friends down there. And they're, it's amazing to see how they're banding together. And if you're listening, please donate. They yeah. still need it donate 10 bucks every day or every week or five bucks every yeah. other week it, it goes a long way mm -hmm. um you are in the process of making a new ep as well mm -hmm. yeah. um, is what's the focus on that um you're grown up now yeah, um, yeah i'm grown up at 22 grown up at 22 <laughs> um is there a focus is there a protagonist or how is this different from young adult yeah this one is much less character based um and um more the central theme is more in the texture and feel of the music itself. Um, I am still playing Western sounds, but I wanted to try to incorporate kind of a more diverse Western sound in incorporating what I think, you know, plays into what we hear as Americana music. So I, there are kind of some Latin Southwestern elements in it. There's also some like West African uh, influences in there. I'm like super into Tanari Wen and can't stop listening to them. I don't know anybody who's not really into them right now. Um, but I wanted to try to incorporate these things that I feel are part of Americana music. Um, so texturally, that's kind of the theme. Um, and it's still in the rough mixing stage, but I'm really, really excited about it. And, Perfect. We can't wait yeah. to hear it. Yeah. Well, we want to make sure we have time for one more song. Yeah. Um, but where can people find you? Get your first EP. Check out your Instagram. Sure. Um, first EP is available everywhere. Called Young Adult. Um, so wherever you like to listen to music, it's there. And um, my Instagram is Lady Roads. Perfect. So I'm that, Rhodes Rollins. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, shout out to my brother. Uh, if you like this episode, please go into wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a nice little note and give us a little five-star review. We'd appreciate it. 
What's the name of the last song you're going to take us out with? It's called Young and Thriving. Perfect. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode of Snacky Tunes. Here we go. Thanks for having us.
We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.